Hello, and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Today's movie is one that it's kind of an odd choice for this podcast because I personally think this movie gets a lot of love. It seems like it's one of these that's universally beloved. But at the same time, I kind of have free reign on the show to talk about pretty much any movie I want. And and I can just say, hey, there's always more people in the world that need to appreciate Galaxy Quest. So, yeah, that's our movie today, the 1999 comedy Galaxy Quest. One of these movies that everyone I know seems to like. It, it, it never gets mentioned in, like, the maybe the funniest movies of its era. I think it should. But I think it's just one of those movies that just seems to appeal to almost everybody. And, again, the, the point of a podcast like this is I just... If I could get one person who's never seen Galaxy Quest to give it a chance because of this podcast, then I think it will be worth it. So, that's the goal today. My guest today, uh, let's see, this is a guy I've known for quite a while through Facebook. He's a Canadian comedian. He's done improv comedy before. Um, he is a uh, big, big Star Trek fan. That's one of the reasons he's here today. And uh, he and his uh, brother, or he and his cousin, are putting together a podcast on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this is, uh, he's got a lot of podcast experience. I'm very excited to bring him on here. Welcome to the show, Mark Kalzer. Uh, yes, I am plucky comic relief Mark Kelzer. <laughs> yes, welcome to the show. I think you may be the first hardcore Trekkie I've had on the show. And before you answer that, I am allowed to say Trekkie, right? It's not Trekker. Uh, some people take that very seriously. I'm kind of of the opinion that once you start drawing a line between Trekkie and Trekker, um, I no longer care what you have to say. <laughs> Honestly, my um, maybe just alienated part of our audience already there, but. Uh, I, I do feel there's, there's a certain bit of gatekeeping that you already get involved with with that topic. So uh, personally, I don't care. I know some people do. Uh, you know, you could call me a questerian for all I care. <laughs> when I first started uh, planning out this podcast, I had a lot of hosts that I knew had radio experience or podcast experience or movie experience. And Mark is one of these guys that I had uh, really wanted to do a show with right from the start. And if I recall, you're oh, really? the one. Yeah, you're the one who suggested Galaxy Quest, right? Well, I think you get that picture of like your DVD rack of movies you might want to do a show about, and I'm like, uh, well, I'm I am a Star Trek fan. I am on your Patreon too, and uh, I could t- I could say a lot about how this is like an allegory for Star Trek. Uh, I'm kind of your guy for that. I, I do kind of agree. It is kind of a movie that people ask, does it need more love? Is it really a staff pick? Because staff pick is usually like this is a uh, less beloved movie that needs some love, right? And uh, Galaxy Quest, I'll say the Star Trek community has really adopted Galaxy Quest as one of their own, more so than even the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, really. Now, was it always like that? I'm curious. Did they embrace this movie right off the bat? Uh, I'm not too close to the community in general because sometimes I find they're a little too toxic, but I'd say... It was a bit of a slow burn, but uh, there was a poll at a Star Trek convention a couple of years ago where they were asked to rank the Star Trek movies. And I got to say, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek in the Darkness finished dead last. Number one was Galaxy Quest. Number one. That's impressive because it's not even yeah. like a canonical Star Trek movie. Yeah, I got to look this up, but I am pretty sure that's what happened. Is, is that uh, Gal- you hear me typing here. Galaxy Quest ranked number one star trek film like the abrams movies they have a lot of uh a lot of broad appeal but star trek fans uh you know again there's a lot of there's a lot of variants in that and that's going to be a lot of variants anytime you start having a franchise with multiple titles under it but at large 
In the Darkness was not beloved, and let me see. Oh, sorry, Galaxy Quest finished seventh. Okay, so it was seventh. It was above uh, above Generations, above Motion Picture, which is unsurprising. Uh, above In the Darkness, and obviously Wrath of Khan. Without even looking, that was number one. <laughs> Wait, so it finished seventh, not first. So you've already lost some of your street cred here, Mark. I'm sorry, I was not at the convention. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, well. Um, I, I'm not sure that I mentioned to, this to you before the podcast, but I wanted to bring this up before we get into the movie. Why I think this will be an interesting discussion is because I am not a Star Trek fan at all whatsoever. So this may be a little awkward, but I will say I love Galaxy Quest. And that's the thing. I'm not sure you really need to like Star Trek to appreciate Galaxy Quest so much as you need to know all the little tropes and all the little like uh, mm -hmm. conventions and all the little cliches. Because I've seen Star Trek movies and I will just give a little back history here that when I was a kid, my, you know, my mom and dad would take me to, to movies. And I was five years old in 1979 when the Star Trek movie came out. And that was my introduction to Star Trek. As Just picture, imagine a five-year-old trying to sit through that boring piece of shit movie. I, I love the motion picture, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be the one to say you're wrong to hate it. It's a movie that um, – it's hard science fiction is what it is. Yeah, and again, I'm five years old. My my previous experience with theater is Pete's Dragon. <laughs> so I'm not quite ready for this hardcore science fiction. So anyway, that was the first movie I ever fell asleep in. And I remember seeing Wrath of Khan a couple years later, and I thought that was boring too. So I kind of, again, I may have been too young for it, but I just checked out on Star Trek really early in my life and to the point that I've never really gotten into it or given it a chance since then. So... This is going to be a fun discussion because we are completely polar opposites on this topic. Uh, yeah, I was raised not on the movies, on The Next Generation. I'm born in 84, and so The Next Generation comes on the air in 1987. Then I kind of just grew up alongside it. And I think maybe a TV show, if you're going to become a diehard Trek fan, it's really about the TV shows. The movies are great in their own way, but uh, they're a little more broad. But uh, but yeah, I'm also of the opinion that I like that this movie, Galaxy Quest, does not rely on you being a Star Trek fan. Uh, I think that's just uh, – it's very important, for, I think, for it to uh, be able to appease those audiences. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting into earlier when I asked if the Star Trek community embraced this movie right off the bat because I can imagine some of them must have bristled when this first came out thinking it's making fun of them. Uh, no, I'll say there's a lot of people out there who love to make fun of Star Trek fans. I've seen talk radio in Toronto just openly shit on Star Trek fans saying, oh, there's a convention downtown. Uh, I wonder if they're going to get a girlfriend. And this is like mainstream talk radio that my brother's listening to. And I'm just like, why? 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 Like, why is this the thing? Why is it that you're allowed to talk about sports stats to death, but I'm not allowed to talk about Star Trek or Lieutenant Worf? Why does this matter to you? Why do you need to look down upon this? And uh, there's a lot of things out there in pop culture, not so much movies as much now that dirt have kind of taken over the movies. But uh, outside of that realm, it's still – you can sort of tell when someone's making fun of you. Uh, Galaxy Quest is kind of a thing that – it's light poking fun at fans, poking fun at Star Trek, but we can kind of tell that it's done out of love. And uh, I think that's very important because I think part of the reason that Into Darkness is so despised by Trek fans is because G.G. Abrams, he was a Star Wars fan and he wanted to make a Star Wars movie, but he couldn't make a Star Wars movie at the time. And so being given the Star Trek job, he kind of made Star Trek by way of Star Wars. And the fans can kind of tell that this is not someone who loves Star Trek, or maybe somebody you've seen in uh, Wrath of Khan. So he was like an intruder stepping into your world. Right, and and that's so totally okay. I think it's okay to have non-fans direct 
parts of a property. It's just that um, you know certain people they get involved and they would like binge watch the TV series and then they would start to see what the appeal is. And uh, you know something like the Marvel movies, you kind of what you see with that is that they're making these movies for fans of Marvel comics and then turn build new fans who even if they don't read the Marvel comics they start to get the appeal of why these stories are so captivating and in turn they become fans whereas Abrams Star Trek it's kind of like well you're making Star Wars you're making it full of violence and action and uh, in the end you're not gaining any new fans certainly not fans who are going to be buying DVDs and going to conventions you're just sort of placing right Mm -hmm. they're three star movies but nobody loves the Abrams movies, the way they love the Marvel movies. And that's a real problem I think Paramount's been having with these movies of late. Yeah, um, getting back to Galaxy Quest, just something you had mentioned Sorry. earlier I wanted to follow up on, was uh, the, the thing that strikes me about Galaxy Quest in particular is that it's not mean-spirited at all. And it really could be, because if you're going to make something like this that's really taking digs at a whole fan base, it could go one of two ways. And I think I remember reading somewhere that uh, one of the executives, when they first got the script for this movie, they said, well, this could either be either be like a massive, awesome movie or a complete disaster. Like, there's no middle ground for this. Mm-hmm. And so that's the one thing that really strikes me about this one is that it's very, again, it makes fun of Star Trek, but it's so gentle and it's just not mean-spirited at all. So that's that's one of the things that I, um, I think really has stood out about this movie over the years, why it has a hit at the time and why it continues to be a hit and why it continues to gain fans because it's it's just such a a loving homage to star trek i would say yeah this is the thing you're sort of taught in theater it's that to never hate the character you're playing even if you're playing a complete asshole try to take it the approach of you yourself love this character or the person you're playing loves himself and i kind of feel like that's what this movie's doing is that it's making fun of star trek but it still loves Trek in every way and and, we, and there's certain things I can just point to as we go through the movie that sort of uh, exist as a love letter to what we're doing um, you know I certainly think Star Trek's probably easier to make fun of than Star Wars certainly um, there's a certain rigidity to Star Trek you know and Star Wars is always making fun of itself anyway so and I should point out like I'm a big fan of Saturday Night Live they they've made fun of Star Trek constantly over the years. They don't do many Star Wars parodies, but even going back to mm-hmm. the original cast, you had I'm assuming you've seen some of the Star Trek uh, sketches like with uh, John Belushi as Captain Kirk. Uh yeah, I've seen one where uh the ship starts shaking back and forth. And they don't bother to tilt the camera, right? They just have the <laughs> actors t- do the thing where they lean left and they lean right, right? Yeah, it's that one and it's like uh the network is coming to shut down the show and none of the actors want to give it up. So like it's the last days of the Star Trek Enterprise. And then they did a Star Trek parody in the 80s with William Shatner, which I'm sure this is one that Star Trek fans maybe not like as much where Shatner tells all the fans to get a life and go home basically. Uh, yeah, that's like to me like that's the wrong way to do this. Uh, you know, like you know, this movie it it makes fun of fans, but in the end, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of giving you permission to be in love with this. Oh, okay. Well, let me follow that up with another question. William Shatner historically maybe doesn't do so well with the fans. What is from what from your experience? What will what's William Shatner's reputation among the uh, Star Trek fans these days? Well, I attended a Q&A about, a, about two years ago where it was William Shatner and Patrick Stewart, and uh, the fans there were uh, quite pleased to see him. Um, Shatner's in a bit of a weird spot because he's in the – he's. I think uh, some of the older fans were a little upset at him during that period in time. Now Shatner's kind of uh, – he's kind of chosen 
to go to give in to self-parody. And he's very good at the self-parody. And I think being able to make fun of himself has opened himself up to more uh, more love. Uh, you know, somebody said in improv once that if you're going to be hosting a show, uh, try to put yourself at a lower status than the audience. And that's kind of what Shatner's been doing. Uh, there was a period in time where he didn't know why people hated him. He didn't know why his castmates hated him. You know, Star Trek V was probably like the height of his hubris. Uh, he's come down from that, though, over the years. And he's a... Uh, He's a little more down to earth now, I think, than he was before. Um, but like James Doohan, you know, he hated William Shatner, and to his to his death, he still he never got a chance to reconcile with him. And uh, you know, Shatner is very much like the Tim Allen character here, where there's a sort of a push pull of grudging respect and disrespect. Okay, well, let's we're about to go into the movie here, but I wanted to uh, just uh, get a little backstory of the two of us, how we got into this movie. I have an interesting background with this movie in that when it first came out, it came out, it was advertised in theaters in 1999, and my wife wanted to see it. My wife and her whole family, a lot of them are Star Trek fans. My in-laws are forever trying to get my kids to become Star Trek fans, much to my horror. <laughs> so, but anyway... The horror... I know. It's, I was I was seeing if I could get away with that line before you, you stopped me. <laughs> but but anyway, this movie. What do you want them to be in a gun violent movies and? We're in counseling, Mark. We're we're dealing with this, okay? It's ongoing. So my this movie was advertised, and I just didn't want to see it at all. It looked like it was like a Star Trek movie, and it looked like if you see the trailers for it, they look very silly. It look, kind of looks like a little kids movie almost. It looks like there's every stupid comedy with all the usual uh, the usual gag jo- jokes, right? Of uh, someone gets hurt, oh ha ha, that's funny, right? Yeah, that's the thing. It looks it looks like a silly movie, like there's nothing outstanding about it. And so I dragged my feet on it for a long time. And my wife and and uh, her family went to see it in the theater, and she came back and she's like, you know, you'd really like this movie. It's a lot smarter and funnier than they're kind of billing it as. And so I eventually got around to it and I saw it. And again, I'll be the first one to this to admit it. I'll 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 give credit where. Credit credit is due i love this movie like from the very first minute i saw it it was i just thought it was so clever and such a an amazing just script and just well done and thought well thought out jokes and very intelligent plotting and everything and i will say right now again i am not a star trek fan but i will say i will uh, award the highest level of prestige i can to galaxy quest and that it's on my very short list of i would say movies that it's impossible to dislike I would be very shocked if there's a person out there who hates this movie. Yeah, I don't have anything to say to that. I, I think I agree with you. It's uh, it's just one of those screenplays, one of those stories that uh, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just does everything right. Yeah, it's. I always say this is something I'm not sure I've brought this up on the podcast before, but like I always say, nature's perfect movie is Back to the Future. I would say there's no one, there's not a single person on earth who could dislike that movie. It appeals to everybody. And there's only like four movies I could think of that I always put in that category that every single person who sees this movie will like it. And I will put Galaxy Quest right up there. So, again, right off the bat, that's the level of prestige I hold this movie in. It's like Back to the Future, Princess Bride, stuff like that. These are these movies that I just think are so universal that, and that's why I felt so strongly we should do this episode. Again, it, it may be already beloved, but. Just if we could get one more, one person, young person to give it a chance just from our podcast, I think it'll be worth it. Because I think we can agree, like as you were saying, when it was first being advertised, it's a bit of a give me a break kind of a premise if you're not already a fan of that, right? Yeah. Again, it just looks silly. Like I see them mm-hmm. watch the trailer. I'm telling people go on YouTube and watch it and you'll be like, I've seen this movie before. This is like any yeah. SNL parody of a sci-fi movie. It's one of the rare comedies where the best gags are not in the trailer. Yes, exactly. 
Almost because they were afraid of the, of showing them, maybe. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think it's to its detriment that people didn't, maybe they hid the best gags too well. Because, again, as a comedy writer myself, this movie has outstanding writing. Like, uh, so clever and so, again, uh, intricate, some of the stuff they're coming up with. And just, like, the different levels of meta humor going on. So it's just, again, um, I've, I've spoken far too long. What, like, what's your history with this movie? Were you, did you see it on opening night? Uh, I think opening weekend or something like that. I just remember it was like the first uh, movie I saw at our brand new 24-plex Whitby AMC theater. Uh, we are so happy just to get a 24-plex finally in our area, even though they're all kind of packed in or like sardines. But uh, AMC has left Canada. They left that theater behind. It was one of the only good theaters that had a lot of attendance. But I don't really have any great story behind this movie. You could just cut this all out because it's just like I saw it. I was a Star Trek fan. And uh, yeah. That's kind of the story. Okay, are you ready to delve into this movie and explain to people why they should love it so much? Uh, sure. Make it so. Is that what you want? You want Star Trek quotes here? Engage? I was expecting Star Trek quotes. It's not much of the matter if I wanted them or not. It's like every time a Star Trek movie comes out, it just this is a distract, uh, digression, but go to the local newspaper. They will always have their headlines set phasers for fun or warp speed and just all of the dumb cliches because they're trying to be clever it's just yeah look for it every time and they think they're the first person who came up with that joke exactly okay well we're gonna set our phasers to fun all right we're gonna go right into this movie this movie is again it's very much a uh loving homage to star trek but you don't need to know star trek it, it would help if you know the star trek references and all the jokes they're making in this movie but again it's not mandatory again i'm the biggest uh wet blanket when it comes to star trek around and i think this is the greatest movie probably one of the best comedies of the late 90s so it's the story of a tv show called galaxy quest which in this universe that we're in it aired in the, the late 70s probably early 80s is that right mark they, they timestamped the uh, last episode of the original series as 1982, so uh, so we're about 18 years since they were canceled. Okay, yeah, so this is this old science fiction show called Galaxy Quest, which aired in the 80s, and we opened the movie with just a an episode of this TV show, and you got, what is it, you got Tim Allen in there as the commander, you got Sigourney Weaver as the the lieutenant who, like, all she does is repeat the computer, that's the only reason she's on the show. I'm curious, is that based on an actual in-joke on the Star Trek series? So a lot of these characters, other than Tim Allen, they're kind of based on hybrids. Uh, so speaking just about Sigourney Weaver, I had some problems figuring this out, because she's certainly not an Uhura reference. And then it finally became clear to me looking at TV tropes. Um, and the next generation, you had Counselor Troy, and her big thing was that she's telepathic. She's not a full telepath. She can only sense feelings. And so what you would often have was that there'd be the guy in the view screen saying, uh, yeah, come beam on down. There's nothing dangerous here. And Troy would always say, Captain, I sense this person's being deceptive. And it was so totally obvious from the character's performance that that he's being deceptive. But you just needed someone to say, oh, this person's feeling sad. This person's angry. And uh, so it was just... That's the extrapolation you have with Gwenda Marco, just saying the obvious for those, almost, almost as if just to give the female a line, because men classically do not know how to write females. <laughs> yes. But uh, yes, the ship in the, show, in the show is called the NSEA Protector. I think it was NTE, the NTE, because it's, uh, it's believed that it references not the Enterprise. Okay. I am not going to challenge you on any trivia, so I will just, whatever Mark says is correct. Let's just go with that one. Okay. 
Wait for the comments to find out how wrong I am about everything. <laughs> well, you did think that the uh, Galaxy Quest was the number one ranked Star Trek movie of all time, so we started on a wrong foot there. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of trying to hide how much, how many wikis I have open right now. <laughs> all right, well, let's set the phasers back to fun and get going here. Okay. Tim Allen plays the commander, and you got uh, Sigourney Weaver as the like the command, the lieutenant on the side, and you have uh, Alan Rickman, Snape himself, as this guy, Doctor Lazarus, who's clearly like a Spock. He's like an alien. He's logical. And again, these are all just tropes and parodies of Star Trek. And for some for some reason, we have like this little kid pilot. Was that ever a thing on Star Trek that they have children piloting the plane? Uh, well, I could go into detail here. I'll try to give you the short version. Um, the next generation comes around, and uh, the creator, Gene Roddenberry, decides to create this character who's kind of a cipher for himself. Basically, he's kind of a Mary Sue, because he's got the same name as Gene Roddenberry, Wesley, which is his middle name. He is precocious. He is brilliant. He is so perfect at everything that you have a guy, an alien, come by and just point out how brilliant he is. And he was a pilot. Uh, he, but he was 14 years old, and uh, everyone hated writing for him because this is a character who is so perfect because it's based on the creator. And you need people around to be able to point out, boy, this Wesley, he's so brilliant. Even us, our android is dumber than him. So that is based That is based in reality. This, there's a kind of a uh, precedent for this child pilot here. Oh, yeah, and uh, he it, it's Will Wheaton, who was famous for Stand By Me, and, uh, you know, I gotta say, you know, the character, Wesley Crusher, is not great. Will Wheaton, though, boy, is he a good sport about this whole thing now, like, years later. He's, like, an ambassador for the Star Trek fans. He's a really great guy. He's a great guy to follow on Twitter and all that. Uh, he definitely came out a lot better than Jake Lloyd has. <laughs> yes. Okay, so this is the, the crew of the NSCA Protector, and again, it's... And, and sorry, NTE. Oh, I'm sorry. God damn it, now I'm in a fight with a Trekkie. <laughs> it's okay. I, mean, I think they do say NSC on screen a couple of times, which may just be, you know, like one of the running jokes we have in the, sh of the movie here is that the actors of the show don't know anything about the show they're actually on all the time. I don't want to get into a fight with a uh, Star Trek fan, but I do have to say, it's been proven that Captain Kirk was better than Picard, right? I mean, that's pretty much been established? No. <laughs> um... <laughs> strike this, strike this, we don't want to get into this. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's... I'm just trolling, I apologize. Okay, so, again, this is the TV show Galaxy Quest, and it ended in 1982, and we flash forward to the future as where we are in this movie, and now it's uh, 1999, and we're at a convention, it's like a Galaxy Quest convention, and you're meant to believe that these conventions have been going on all the time, probably every year, all these people meet, and, you know, they dress up at their favorite character, and, Mark, I, I, I almost shudder to ask this, how many conventions have you been to? Um, I wish I could say I've been to more. I know you had somebody on your Facebook who was trying to say I've been on t several convention floors. And uh, I've been to Fan Expo, which is Canada's version of um, Comic-Con. And I have been to a uh, Q&A event that had the entire Next Generation crew there, and it was a total blast there. They sung Happy Birthday, not for me, but I like to pretend it was for me because my birthday was the day after. So I have been to Q&As hosted by the cast of Next Generation and William Shatner, as I mentioned before. Having been to conventions, how is the one in this movie? Is it fairly realistic on what those conventions look like? Uh, I am astonished by how good this looks. Like You know, like you have this thing where you go into a fictional world, you have a fictional made-up TV series, and you can sort of tell how poorly built out this world is, right? It's, it's, like, it's like when a Marvel movie goes from the real world to an alien planet, and you can just tell... 
you don't see the cultural nuance you would see from a real lived-in planet, right? And but this looks the merchandise even from a distance looks so real. The signs look like just a little collage of different styles and the cosplay. Like you know, you, you can sort of perceive a story behind each cosplay, even if we have no idea watching this movie what it re- represents. There's just a care and attention to give it detail that we're never going to be able to figure out the story behind. Yeah, and I guess the one way to say it is this movie was written by somebody who clearly knows this world pretty well. Yes. The merchandise looks authentic and the uh just the little details, like even just the fangirls, the uh the shippers, right? There's like there's uh, there's in Next Files there was the idea of the shippers, right? People who want Mulder and Scully to get together and you would just see in the background whenever uh whenever Gwen and uh Jason kiss, they start fawning because that's what they wanted for so long. <laughs> now see I laugh when I see that in the episode. I didn't realize that's based on a real thing. So now that makes me like that joke even more. Yeah, and it's not even too much of a Star Trek thing because like in the original series, it was just Shatner and uh, well, there was all, it was Shatner and every girl in the galaxy. But uh, Uhura was your only female lead, and they never hooked up except under mind control, which doesn't really count. So uh, you never had the shipper mentality. The shipper mentality is a little more prevalent, I'd say, in X Files. That's where that's where the term originates. I'll, I'll just say this: every time that you have a guy in a male lead, a female in the male lead, it's just a go-to. We audience. Some part of the audience wants to see them hook up, and uh, it's just the way things always are. Okay, so we're at the convention, and the audience is out there chanting and cheering because all the crew members from the original Galaxy Quest are there in attendance. Like, oh my god, Tim Allen's here. Uh, I always forget the character names. I'm just going to pretty much refer to them by the actors at this point. Well, well, yeah, I, I got to say, like, even though I've watched this movie a thousand times, I still cannot remember what any of these names are. And it hurts that there are three names for every single one of these actors. Yeah. I've got Wikipedia open on my screen just because IMDb only tells me the name of the actors they're playing and not the characters within the show on the movie they're playing as. No, that's a good move because, I, again, I'm going to struggle with this through this podcast. Like you said, they all have three names, the actor name, the character name, and then the, the, star, the Galaxy Quest character they play. Okay, so anyway, all these actors are coming out to uh, to wave to the crowd and to talk to them and sign autographs, and they're all waiting backstage. And this is where we see the dynamic between the Galaxy Quest cast. Basically, that Tim Allen is the world's biggest prima donna asshole, that he's been playing this role for years to the point that he actually kind of thinks he, he is the commander of the uh, Protector. He actually thinks he is the space captain. And so we start the movie with all of them just sitting backstage grumbling that they have to go out and sign autographs for all these fans. And Tim Allen's not here yet. And he's, he's always an hour and a half late. And he's been booking things just for himself and not with them. And again, we just see this dysfunctional dynamic they've probably had all these years. Led, of course, by Alan Rickman, who I'm sure we have a lot to say about the uh, <laughs> Alan Rickman plays this uh, this trained British stage actor named Alexander Dane, who hates that he once played Dr. Lazarus, the Spock character. He cannot believe this is the, the role he will be remembered for in his lifetime. He has this stupid catchphrase that he has to say in every single goddamn Galaxy Quest episode where he says, by Grabthar's hammer. Uh, you shall be avenged, or by Grabthar's hammer, we live to tell the tale. So basically, by Grabthar's hammer, dot, dot, dot. That's what he is expected to say. He's grumbling. He's like, I'm not going out there, not staying that stupid line. And this is where this is where we meet the uh, dynamic of the cast. Yeah, there's definitely a sense that uh, these people are jaded. Other than Tim Allen, I'm, I'm now even I'm doing it, Tim Allen. <laughs> you know, Tim Allen, he's the, the leader of the cast. And uh, yeah, it sort of feels like... Tim Allen has the biggest hole that he's filling with this show, right? I mean, uh, 
you get a sense a little later on that uh, he feels he's a bit of a fraud, and he sort of he sort of washes away that self doubt by jumping into this part still years later, right? And uh, you know he uses the Galaxy Quest phenomenon sort of to hide, and you know, and this is where he's accepted. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's this is where people fawn over him, and he doesn't get that. It's almost as if because he's not a hero in any kind of real life situation, he relies on this to give his life meaning. Well, yeah, this is all he's ever had. Exactly. The only thing he's good at. And again, there's probably some parallels there to Shatner if you wanted to go for him. I'd say a parallel just to TV acting in general, right? Um, it's or in movie acting. It's sort of a, it's sort of that schism of how the Hollywood actors are the most important people in America, and what do they do? They just entertain. And so what does that mean? Yeah, it really comes down to what is your essence? Are you the character or are you the person who plays the character? Who are you? Exactly. Have you ever actually done anything of importance? Uh, and and Alan, Alan Rickman, he's kind of playing a bit of a hybrid between Leonard Nimoy and Patrick Stewart. Uh, the Shakespearean angle is very Patrick Stewart. And even William Shatner, he did a lot of uh, Shakespeare company in Canada, actually, but not a lot of people talk about that. Patrick Stewart, he never was ashamed of being in Star Trek, but Leonard Nimoy famously went through that transition where he published a book saying, I am not Spock, fans revolted. Later on, he publishes the book, I am Spock, as sort of an apology tour to that whole thing. And then he died playing Spock to his death, which was a nice touching tribute mm -hmm. to the fans. I think even Leonard Nimoy had his own sort of a crisis of conscience over this whole thing. Yeah, and I imagine anybody who's stuck in a role for 30 years... I mean, just gets haunted by it. I just it has nothing to do with Star Trek, but I remember uh, Sam Kinison in the '90s in his stand-up act used to have a bit about Captain Kangaroo, the beloved child's entertainer, and Kinison would be like, "This guy probably wanted to go out and like murder prostitutes and just get drunk because <laughs> 30 years I was effing Captain Kangaroo for 30 years and I'm a trained actor." It's really the dilemma of being a TV actor, right? It's like you always want that big pilot to succeed right and then you have that work for so many years but then that can backfire because you get stuck playing that role forever and you can never really escape it and you know tv's full of actors who were stranded in that one role and uh you know people say with the seinfeld cast how some of them couldn't move on and it's like well would you rather have would you rather be george costanza forever or be skipping between roles for your entire life i don't really know what the answer is to that really yeah i mean it have to be believe it's uh the answer is different for every person. It really depends on what, why you got into acting and what you expect to get out of it. And when you go to these fan expos, what you sort of see is just, uh, you know, cast members from Battlestar Galactica or Stargate SG-1s. And it's just these people, their career now is just going to conventions, being themselves, collecting that $50 fee for every autograph and picture. They're not getting a lot of acting work, but this supports their income. And so... Uh, what you're seeing in the movie right now is basically that. This is their only job, is to just be themselves, really. And again, this was something they did 18 years ago, and you can just sense they've been doing this. This is all they've had on the uh, their acting resume for the last two decades. So they just resent it, they're bitter, and you got Sigourney Weaver here at the start of the movie even saying, she's like, I was the, like the number two in command on the ship. I never even got a, a line. Nobody ever gave me any interesting character or anything. All they wrote about on the, on the summaries was my boobs. And the only role I had on the yeah. ship was to repeat what the computer says. That's all I did for 20 years of my life is repeat the computer. So, yeah, it's a uh, you just feel a lot of bitterness. 
the TV Guide interview was like something that actually happened to a Star Trek actress in Voyager uh, 7 of 9 who uh, the producers did kind of lean into the sexuality of her a little more than I would like. But uh, leave it to the TV Guide to focus just on the women's appearance. Leave it to any media to focus only on the women's appearance, really. Well, speaking of the reaction to the show, okay, so here we go. So all the cast members show up at the uh, the convention, and they wave to the crowd, and they start signing autographs. And this is where we meet some of the more uh, devoted fans of the Galaxy Quest cast members, if you will. We meet, uh, first off, there's this group of kids led by Justin Long. Is I think his character's name is Brandon. And they're like the biggest Galaxy Quest dorks you can think of to the fact that they have like 3D generated models of the ship back at their house. They have all, they have pages and pages of how the exhaust system works. And like they all, they're all always coming up to people at the conventions and asking them the most technical (laughs) questions. Like, like a. (laughs) Yeah, this, this kind of was me. Um, uh, look, like next generation, they had some detailed publications about that ship more so than the original ship you had the technical manual which was given to me i did not buy but i have read parts of it uh, a lot of it and uh they had blueprints for the next generation enterprise which uh i think they're online now but uh i was given those as well uh with very detailed layouts of every deck of the ship for those who cared and uh of course growing finally in my later years i finally got a look at the actual set designs and for some reason i cared about that even more so it's just fans really care a lot about the behind-the-scenes detail, almost more so than uh, the writers. And remember, this is an era before wikis. Uh, I think nowadays wikis are probably even used by modern TV writers now to keep track of their own mythology. But but back then, you just the fans knew more about the mythology than even the writers did. And uh, sort of this whole idea of the Thermians building a ship is based on the idea that uh, enough people take this seriously that if you wanted blueprints, you could find them. <laughs> So what you're saying is when these kids walk up to Tim Allen and start asking him about the Quasar Dilemma, like, that's not really an exaggeration. That's what would happen at these conventions. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the dirty secret of Star Trek writing is that there's this term called technobabble. That's basically the writer saying engineers going to say some made up word that we're going to invent and then we're going to make up a solution to this problem we just invented. And that's kind of what the Quasar Dilemma <laughs> is, which is a made up problem with a made up solution. And we're trying to figure out, well, wait, if they said this in this moment, how can this be true? Like fans will take every word a character says literally to the point of just confusing themselves because it being made up, it's there is no cohesion behind it, there's no logic behind it. But regardless, fans will just try to make the connections regardless. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say, these are some of my fav- favorite characters in the movie, this, this group of nerdy little kids here. I, I hate to say that they're nerdy, it's kind of a mean thing to say about them, but there's no other way to describe them. They're just... Yeah. consistently following around the cast members and fawning over them and asking them technical questions that, again, the actors couldn't give a crap about. And There's a great scene here where uh, Alan Rickman is signing autographs, and every single person that comes up to him is, says that stupid line that he hates. <laughs> like, by Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. And then he signs their autograph, and the next guy comes up and says the same line, by Grabthar's hammer. Yeah, a little, a little secret to people out there. If you ever meet a celebrity and they were on Star Trek... Don't just quote their line to them. They've heard it a million times. Don't even talk about Star Trek. Like, like uh, um, you know, if you're talking to Sigourney Weaver, don't mention Alien. Uh, talk to her something about more of the obscure things she was in. Uh, talk about The Village. <laughs> uh, you need to show about that one. That's uh, She actually wants to talk about The Village because nobody asks her about The Village. I guarantee you this. I was going to ask her about the complex biology of the alien in the second movie. 
So I, I should not do nope, that. Nope, don't do that. Okay, just making sure. Because <laughs> she's heard it all and she doesn't care. Okay, so so again, we meet all these fans that are just hounding these poor Galaxy Quest people. And again, just watching Alan Rickman just sigh in pain that he has to do this. Just one of the funniest things in this movie. And then we get this other group of people. They're Thermians. And uh, apparently these are real aliens that have come down from space to talk to the cast of Galaxy Quest. But it's funny because at the convention, you have no idea they're real space aliens because they're dressed like every other fan there. Yeah, they kind of play this comedic trope. It's a comedic trope, right? They confuse identity and, uh, you know, eventually the shoe falls. But they hold on to this one a lot. And it kind of works here if only because you can excuse so many things under the umbrella of, well, these are fans. This is cosplay. The fact that there are aliens walking around the convention floor, no one could ever tell. Yeah, nobody bats an eye that four aliens are walking around. And I I have to give a shout-out here to who I think is the real MVP of this movie, and that's the guy that plays uh, Mathazar, the leader of the uh, Thermians. And I don't know, do you know his name? I do. It's Enrico Colantoni, and I just revealed that I was reading it off my screen, but uh, (laughs) that is his name. Yeah, he was in a TV show called Just Shoot Me in the 90s. He was with the David Spade and Laura San Giacomo. And I don't know, I know he's done other stuff, but I don't know what else he did off the top of my head. I just know him from Just Shoot Me and then Galaxy mm-hmm. Quest. But I'm going to say right out, right flat out here that I think he's the MVP of this movie because he gives this movie a little heart and a little depth to it that it might not have had otherwise. Yeah, it really straddles that weird edge between being too silly and being just just cohesive enough that... It's poignant, right? Mm-hmm. And then and when you're doing comedy, that line is just so, so fragile. Yeah, and again, this movie could just go straight parody, but you have this guy, his name is Mathazar, he's the leader of the Thermians, they've come down from space to basically ask the help of the Galaxy Quest, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit, I'm going to skip through a little bit of this movie, that basically what happens is, they're this race out in space, and they have been threatened by this evil intergalactic warlord named Ceres, and they need some help. They don't know how to deal with him, they're just simple, childlike people, these poor Thermians, and... As luck would have it, they've somehow seen this Galaxy Quest TV show. It's been beamed through space. They somehow picked it up, and they're so naive and, and just, like, childlike, they don't get that it's a TV show. They think this is something real, like real people going through real adventures. And that's the plot of this movie, that they have, they, they've seen these episodes of this, this silly TV show, and they think they're historical documents. That's how they have interpreted these things. And they're like, well, look at these people. They fly around in space, and they're like the symbols of good and they always solve problems and they always save the day so we'll go down to earth and we'll recruit these people to come up to our spaceship and help us with this warlord who's terrorizing our people which if this plot sounds familiar it's really just the three amigos it's the exact same movie basically really three amigos i didn't i didn't know that reference oh so have you seen three amigos Never even heard of Three Amigos, probably. Uh, maybe it's before my time. Uh, okay, I, before my audience absolutely screams in terror that somebody doesn't know Three Amigos. Yeah, that's it's from 1986. It would be a little before your time. Yeah, I was born in 84. Okay, yeah, it's these three uh, movie stars, these actors in silent Western comedies are recruited to come to this Mexican village to help stop a bandit who's stealing all their food and, and like, are kidnapping their kids and stuff because they think that these cowboys are real cowboys. They're actually just actors. It's, again, it's the exact same thing, only instead of space, it's the Wild West. But I will say, Mark, if you enjoy Galaxy Quest, go watch Three Amigos. You will, okay. you, you will love it. It's one of, those, one of my favorite comedies of that era. 
I was going to say that this is based on a bit of an original series trope. Uh, do you want me to go into details? I'm sort of picking what Star Trek tropes I want to reference here because I could go on for six hours here and you only want to go an hour and a half. But uh, I think this is one that's relevant here where um, – so basically, the original series had a bit of a production problem in Star Trek, uh, right? Budgeting, right? How do you make a new alien world every week? And the little trick is that you don't. Uh, instead, you kind of go into the back lot and you find whatever leftover scenery is kind of sitting around what costumes and uh, you set a story there. And uh, how do you justify them going to an alien planet that looks just like 60s or not 60s, but Chicago's gangster era? Well, in one instance, they had an episode where uh, a ship had gone by this planet ages ago and left behind a book about Chicago gangsters. And this book was adopted by the alien species as their religion to the point where they remade their entire society in the style of Chicago gangsters. So when Kirk and Spock get down, they're like, hmm, everyone looks like humans. They all speak English. They all have cars and just they're all shooting each other and uh, they all play card games. And it's like, why is this? Well, it's because they've adopted this book as their philosophy, their entire worldview. So this whole Galaxy Quest plot line is based on that trope. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. But I mean, I've I've heard of that episode, but I didn't realize this was based on that as well. Right, and they do this a lot of times. They they, they invent other reasons for uh, alien planets. There's one alien planet that adopted the American Constitution, not even based on any kind of left behind book. It just happens to be that there's a planet that has a United States with an identical constitution. They speak English perfectly, just again by coincidence. And it's just uh, – they invent a theory for in universe to explain this eventually, and then later on, the next generation, they stop doing it because it is kind of stretching the credibility of their universe. They have everyone speak English and be perfectly like Earth. Well, they do get around this in this movie by giving the Thermians these little voice simulators, so they can right. simulate English. So there we go. So we've yes. covered that plot hole. And image projectors to make them look like humanoids because like, most aliens are going to look like the weird, googly, tentacle monsters that they really are. Okay, so let's jump forward here into the movies here. So they uh, they have come down, these Thermians, and they have a very distinct way of talking. And I don't know if I could possibly do Mathazar credit here doing his voice, but he's like, We need you. You are our only hope. He's got a very distinct way of talking. And so. Yeah, it's basically not knowing which words in English you're supposed to emphasize. <laughs> yeah. But he's just very adorable and just very earnest that he just wants this guy, Jason Taggart. That's his name, right? Um, Jason Nesbitt is, is uh, Jason Nesbitt is the name of the actor Tim Allen is portraying. All right, let's set the phasers back to fun here. All right, so here we go. So, so Jason Nesbitt has been called up to their spaceship, and he's uh, apparently there to negotiate some peace treaty with some horrible warlord. And and Nesbitt's kind of hungover. He doesn't really realize he's up in space. He thinks he's like uh, at some fan convention, like some fans have built a little tribute set, which you, you probably realize he's probably done hundreds of times before. Oh, yeah. So he's been through this. Oh, yeah, and fans love to do mock-ups. There's a mock-up of the original Enterprise set somewhere in upstate New York, uh... Fans do this a lot, and if they can get one of the lead actors, even better to do like a little promo thing. And I gotta say, Jason Nesmith's kind of a uh, kind of slacking here, showing up without a fake uniform, which we know he's got. He's got props, and he's just sort of a uh, you know showing a Coca-Cola product to your fans is kind of lazy. Yeah, he's just hung over and he's not really paying attention. He's really not even putting in any effort because he's kind of depressed because of all the uh, – I think at the convention he had heard some fans in the bathroom over saying – over, or he overheard them saying that he was like a loser and they were all laughing at him. Oh, yeah, I do want to dive on those fans because those fans 
they piss me off and they exist everywhere, right? Like you just – the internet fan bur- – or I'm not even fan. They're just the person who exists out there to say the meanest, most negative thing about a TV show or movie they can think of because that gives them power, right? And you know, the actors, they kind of survive by – insulating themselves from this negativity because they kind of have to right and uh, on occasion they do get exposed to it like what happens with nesbitt in the bathroom he should have his own bathroom but beside the point hearing what fans really think of them it hurts them and i kind of imagine that was a part of the hubris of shatner which was isolating himself from not just fans but from his fellow cast members for so long that when he heard what they really think of him it did sting yeah, and that's we see that in this movie too, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Jason here isn't uh, giving his full effort to this Thermian negotiation because he doesn't care. He's like, well, I, he had a bad night, he's hungover, so basically he uh, he gets up into space and he's faced with this guy Ceres, and Ceres is like, I'm going to kill you, and and since Jason isn't really putting in any effort, he basically decides, well, we'll just shoot some lasers at this guy. So, so we always do, right? Yeah, not the best negotiation tactic. But again, he thinks this is all just fake. So he's like, well, you know, the protector, we have lasers. So fire the blue cannons, fly the red cannons. Yeah, just fire them all in this guy's face. Go for it. And, and the Thermians are like, ah, that's not a good idea. That's what Thermians do it, though. And next time you see Sarah, she has an eye patch, which he doesn't in this scene. <laughs> yes. Again, to their credit, whatever Commander Jason Nesbitt says, they're going to do it. So he says fire. They fire at the biggest warlord in the galaxy. And Jason's like, all right, well, that was good. I'm going home now. And they're like, well, you just fired on the greatest warlord in the galaxy. He may have survived. And Jason's like, oh, no, I, I fired both barrels. He's done. <laughs> and then he's looking for the exit to the set, which he knows is somewhere. <laughs> yes. That's a little detail I love. <laughs> so he's beamed down back to Earth, and like he doesn't realize that this was an actual spaceship until this beaming process, which basically is some variant of they cover him in goo and he goes shooting through like a black hole. Oh, and one thing I should point out, which not a lot of people know anymore because they don't do it anymore, but when I saw this in theaters, uh, you know aspect ratios, right? Uh, the movie opens on the Academy ratio, the TV ratio, basically. Mm-hmm. And then for the first act, really, it's you got the mats on the sides, right? The two black mats left and right. It's a 185 movie until this exact moment, and then it opens up to the full 235 frame, which is just a nice little effect the filmmakers did. They didn't do it on the DVD, maybe because that would be window-boxing the image, I guess. Oh, yeah, I've only seen it on DVD, so I didn't notice that. That's cool. It hasn't been preserved anywhere else other than the theatrical print, so... (laughs) Okay, so so Captain uh, Nesbitt goes down to Earth, and he he realizes, he's like, oh my god, I was just on an actual spaceship. I just negotiated peace and shot lasers at some guy. That's (laughs) awesome. So he runs to this convention where all his fellow actors are like, it's like the opening of an electronics store. Where, again, this is what this is what their life has turned into. Eighteen years later, they're just at like a Best Buy, cutting a ribbon as it's being opened, and and uh, Sir Alexander Dane has to do his stupid line where he's. By Grabthar's hammer, what the savings? By Grabthar's hammer, what a savings? And then one of the other guys has to say, we've never seen space-age values like these. <laughs> at? There's one guy whose job is just to say at. Have you ever been into play where you had, like, one word, and you put so much emphasis into that one word because you know it's your only chance to speak this entire show? That's when you get at. <laughs> I, I've never noticed that, and I'm going to look for that now. <laughs> It's there, yes. Uh, we didn't even mention this, this guy, uh, Tony Shell-Hope as Fred Kwan. He's Tech Sergeant Shen. Harder to place as a parody for any Star Trek actor, but he's brilliant in this movie. 
Yeah, Tony Shalhoub is one of these guys I've been a big fan of for years. But about 10 years before this movie, he was in a Bill Murray movie called Quick Change, which I would be shocked if you knew about. But he steals that movie. And it's one of these things, how how do you possibly steal a movie from Bill Murray? But he does. There's scenes where Tony Shalhoub upstages Bill Murray. And so I always remember that. And then he shows up here in Galaxy Quest. He did the show Monk. But I'm a, I've been a big Tony Shalhoub fan for years. Just a gift of minimal, act, minimal effort to create amazing results. So uh, I, I admire that so much, uh, especially when you have someone like Tim Allen, who is deliberately aping the William Shatner overacting style. So you can contrast that and be, make even more, more of an impression because of that. Yeah, no, he has some great lines. Shalhoub is going to steal some scenes here. Uh, okay, let's go to the movie here. So we got uh, Jason comes down back to Earth and he tells all his cast members, he's like, I was just up in space. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And he's like, no, I want to. I want you guys to come with me. It was awesome. It was the, the most realistic, the galaxy quest thing I've ever been a part of. And then all of a sudden the Thermians show up. And they have some news. They're like, well, Sarah survived your blast, so you need to come back. <laughs> so Jason's like, well, I want everybody. Let's get the whole crew to go up there, and they can see this. This is the coolest thing ever. And so this is how we get everybody uh, recruited to come up to the ship to fly up into space on this actual working model of the Protector. To the point, they don't want to go. They only really go because they're convinced this is a job for money. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're mostly upset that Jason's going to get paid, and they won't. So it's like a spite gig they're going to take. Yes. And uh, and also just should be pointed out here is that uh, in the margins of this is Sam Rockwell playing Guy Fleegman, who <laughs> wasn't a principal on the show. He was a literal red shirt. He was on one episode, killed before the cold open ended. And uh, his career stagnated even more so. He's just emceeing events. He's just hanging around. But he uh, he wants people to pay attention to him very much so. Yeah, I will say that's my favorite running joke in this movie. Like like Mark said, that all the, the crew of the Galaxy Quest gets sent up to space to be in an actual space simulation. But they have this other guy who's been hanging out at conventions because he was in one episode. And he just wants to be a part of the cast, even though he's never been in there. And so he somehow talks them into beaming him up, too. <laughs> so it's the, the crew of the NSA Protector plus Guy have been brought up to space. I love the name Guy, and I looked and looked it up just before we started recording. This is based on an actual extra or a stand-in from Next Generation, apparently, whose name was also Guy. Look it up. He's real. I did not know this until today. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually read that, too, this morning. That, again, there's lots of clever in-jokes in this, and you don't have to even get them. But it's kind of like uh, when I talked about Not Another Teen Movie. You don't need to know every reference in the movie, mm -hmm. but the more you watch it and the more teen movies you get, you'll get more of the references in the movie. So it's the same in this. Mm -hmm. Like, like you don't have to get all the references, but the more you learn later, you'll find amusing. I kind of thought until then that guy was kind of a bad joke name. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, see, the joke works that way, too. That's why it's genius. Exactly. <laughs> and we're respect now even more. Yeah. So the crew of the Protector has all been beamed up into space, and they're trying to figure out, like, where the hell are we? Like, what's going on here? And this is where the leader of the Thermians, Mathazar, explains, well, you know, we've followed you all these years, and we saw your historical documents, and... We have modeled our society after you people. Like our society was in ruin. We had no resources. We had no values. And we needed a leader. And we saw your historical documents. We've modeled our entire society after your crew. And they've built a spaceship. And they've done everything. Like it's Galaxy Quest right down to every last detail. Better than even Justin Long and his little nerds could have created. That the mm -hmm. Thermians have literally built a society out of Galaxy Quest. And so all the actors are up here. And they're like, um... 
we shouldn't be here, Jason. We're actors. They're treating us like this is real. And uh, Jason's like, no, just go with it. It's awesome. And then this is where uh, Alan Rickman has a great line. He's like, it's like throwing gasoline on a flame. <laughs> okay, so they get up on the bridge, and uh, they all take their seats. And, like, the little kid, Laredo, who was the pilot, is now grown up. He's, like, 20, 25 now. And, like, he's like, these are the exact controls that we had when we were filming the TV show. And, and Jason explains. He's like, well, you know, they the only way they learned how to build a ship was by following your hand, hand motions on the TV show. Like, they've literally built the ship around watching you. Like, every single detail on this ship is based on what they saw on the show. To the point where it's modeled more around the humans they've just beamed up from planet Earth, more so than it's modeled around their own ability to run the ship. And that's a big running theme here is that we built the ship. We got no idea how to run it, but maybe these people who actually ran the protector can figure this out. That's their kind of hope here. Yeah, and there's a great line that I kind of skipped over where the Thermians are talking about how we saw these historical documents and, and like this was so real to us and and all the actors are like, um, they don't really get how TV works, do it. Like, did you ever see like a show called Gilligan's Island and the Thermians all like <laughs> drop their eyes? They're like, those poor people. Like they, everything that yeah. they've seen on TV, they think really happened. It's sort of a, a, an idea of that if your brain isn't wired to understand deception, uh, they just assume this is all real. And it sort of explains why you see in the title cards, even when they're watching the episodes later on, which shows Jason Nesbitt as Peter Quincy Taggart. Even though it's got that credit clearly ascribing another name to this guy, they don't make the connection that it's fiction, right? They're just, they're just not wired to perceive things that way. Yeah, and childlike, that's the only word I can really use to describe them. They're just like children. They've right. never, they do not grasp the concept that you could pretend to be something else, which is kind of interesting when you think about it for a second, because that's really all that, you know, acting is, it's lying. And like, it, well, obviously, we have the brains to accept that. If, but if someone who does not grasp that concept doesn't really understand that, like, it's a whole weird concept. Like, why would you yeah. lie? And so that's the whole premise of this movie, lying. We are introduced to make-believe at a very young age in our lives. And uh, so it's part of our culture, right? It's part of our childhoods. We're taught Disney movies, things like that. The Thermians never had that. And maybe they're not, their brains just aren't designed for it. Yeah, and again, this will will come into play later. I'll get to that when we get to it. Um, so basically, all the crew is up there, and and Guy is like, first he's excited, but now he's like, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. I'm gonna die. Like <laughs> the crewman number six, the guy who doesn't have a name, they always die. I shouldn't be here, and so he starts panicking. And this is where we meet uh, Saris for the second time, the big warlord, and he's like, so you dared to fire your lasers at me last time, and this time, Nesbit is a little more cognizant of what's going on he's like yeah it was just a misunderstanding and basically he tries to fire the cannons at him again and because of a lapse in communication it screws up and basically they try to fire the lasers of saris saris blocks their uh, attack or something and he sends all his attack ships after them and all of a sudden oh crap now we're in a real space battle to, to, to be clear the red thing was going towards the blue thing yeah i didn't want to be too technical but yeah the red thing was going <laughs> towards the yeah <laughs> it's very important to get that out yeah, so Saris and his ship, are, all his uh, minions are flying after this protector, and this is these poor actors flying the ship, not having any idea what to do, and they go racing into a minefield, and basically what happens is they end up escaping Saris, but in the process they destroy the ship because, you know, they're big screw-ups. And so all mm -hmm. of a sudden now they're floating through space, helpless, and their ship has no power, and someone says, well, the reason the ship isn't running is because we uh, the ship is powered on a beryllium sphere. It's this, this mineral that it's very rare to get in the universe, and the ship is powered by it, and you damaged it, Jason. 
You, you broke the bloody ship. Yeah, you broke the bloody ship. And it's quite it's quite interesting that the brilliant sphere was a thing that was on the TV series, and then in actual outer space, the third man's found an actual brilliant sphere to power the ship. It seems the way the physics worked on the show is quite conveniently how physics worked in real life, which, you know, if it was hard science fiction and, and it was accurate enough, then I guess that would make sense, maybe. Yeah, I was just thinking that as well. It's very convenient that they happen to find a substance in, in space which actually does power a ship exactly like yeah. the one on the TV show. Like people say Star Trek is theoretically hard science fiction. Theoretically. Um, it's uh, it's television hard science fiction, right? Like, you can only do so much good science in a 45-minute episode. Like, you have this thing called the Heisenberg Compensator on the show, which is basically we got to compensate for how impossible it is to do these things. I have to say there's one great line here where, where the, yeah, the protector is going, shooting through space, and they're going at hyperspeed, and, uh, someone, and uh, Tim Allen's holding down like the, the hyperspace button for boost speed, and they're like, you're not supposed to hold that down. That's for quick boost only, and, and he yells at uh, Alan Rickman, oh, like you know. She played Excite, but you know that. <laughs> They've, they've basically ruined the ship. Now they're floating through space and they have no beryllium sphere and they can't do anything and they can't go back to Earth because anytime they try to eject or go out of here, Ceres will just shoot them down. So for all intents and purposes, now they're in space and they're fighting this war against this warlord. And so uh, this is where they try to explain to the Thermians. They're like, well, we want to... Um, Explain that you know we kind of screwed up your ship, and you're you know we're belie you're believing in us that we're going to be the protectors and you know bring all this justice to the galaxy and save your people, but we're actors, and they're they're trying to kind of explain how this works, and the Thermians just don't grasp this at all. And there's a great line where where they're trying to explain you know there's like deception and lies like this, so people pretend to be like others, and the leader of the Thermians, Mathasar, is like. Well, Saris does that. We learned that, you know, very well when he would lie to us and then kill us and torture our people. And he's like, but if any of you are suggesting that you could have any traits in common with Saris, ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it's a really, uh, there's no way to portray it perfectly on Mike because it is kind of like the facial expression of a laugh, but the, uh, it's worse than Marvel Schwarzenegger's smile than Terminator 2's deleted scenes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, I will just say this is where Enrico Colantoni, where I think he really becomes the MVP of this movie, because like you feel the pain in his eyes when he realizes that maybe these people are lying to him. Like he's just starting to grasp mm -hmm. that maybe these people might not be the perfect little angels or like heroes that he's seen on his screen. So, again, it's it's all I just point that out. It's all because of him selling this and why you care about the Thermians. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh... You want them to be underdogs, of course. You, but having them being children puts them at even lower status to uh, to everyone. So you can't hate the Thermians, even if part of you is like kind of pitying them for believing the show was real. There's also the little detail that their society was dying. They were crumbling. They were warring. They were impoverished. And say what you will about their delusions. This Galaxy Quest thing did save their species. These values, these Star Trek values, dare I say, they were positive values, they were good values, and it helped them out immensely, far more than anything else there. Um, and uh, maybe just, I'm giving a bit of a broad statement here, but 
I say this movie loves Star Trek. There's something we skipped over I wanted to sort of highlight there where a little detail not a lot of people notice is that when uh, Tim Allen's flipping through the TV, he's drunk. He's at his, his home, and uh, you, you see – you don't see it. You hear a TV show that's just gun violence, robbers, cops, you know, basically the average American cop show, which is just – violent and about abusive cops and uh you know the, the similar tropes and then he flips to galaxy quest and he sees one of his inspirational proud monologues and it's a little goofy of course but it's still like the so it's sort of a subtle message here that most tv is bleak it is violent it is immensely negative which is easy to do in fiction it's easy in fiction to go negative and star trek was always a show that try to be positive it, it still acknowledged the horrors of war but it was always saying we can aspire to be better and what you see with the thermians is that that because this existed we got better and so i just it's a very important message i just wanted to hold on to with this movie it's a very positive message about star trek and why it's okay to be a star trek fan i just got to get that off my chest no, and that's a very good point, because like you said, the Thermians come off as maybe a little annoying and childish, but like you said, this show offered them hope, and it really yeah. led them into a direction that made their people thrive. It doesn't matter that it was fake. Yeah, exactly. To them, it's real, and that's all that matters, and that's I think that's actually a very good argument, because like, like I said, I'm not a Star Trek fan at all, but I respect this fan culture, and I respect what it means to people, because I'm the part of other fan cultures, so... Like, just because Star Trek isn't my thing, I totally get that it is a thing for other people. So I, I, I get this this fan culture. I, I, I respect it absolutely. Okay, and speaking of the Thermians, before we get back to the movie, I cannot. I would be remiss if I did not mention some of the famous uh, faces as the Thermians. Mark, do you recognize any of the Thermians there? I'm curious. You, you may not know some of the movies or TV shows, but who, who the other Thermians are? Um, no. I'm not going to pause this out. I do not know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Missy Pyle, she's the female Thermian, the one who ends up with Tech Sergeant Chen. She's a very famous comedian. She's in a bunch of stuff. You have Rain Wilson in there, who is Dwight from The Office. He's one of the Thermians. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, this was one of his first appearances in a movie. And then you have uh, Dian Bakar. I think that's how it's pronounced, the little guy. He's Squeak Scolari in the movie Basketball, which I also did on uh, Staff Pick. So just anybody who likes seeing comedians in other roles, there's some famous Thermians walking around in the back there. Okay, so two things are going to happen simultaneously here right at this part of the movie. We, uh, we have... Uh, a relationship that forms on on board the ship between one of the Thermians and Dr. Lazarus, and this is his name is Quillick, and he's basically the Thermian version of Dr. Lazarus, and he basically follows him around and fawns after him, and and again this is Alan Rickman's character who just is Mr. Fuddy Duddy, he hates all this thing, and he realizes there's this guy that like treats him like he was his father, and he follows him around, and again this will become important later in the movie where Quillick has basically dedicated his entire life to learning the teachings of Dr. Lazarus and and learning the by grab Thar's hammer line. So just file that away. That will come in handy later in the movie. Foreshadowing. Yes, okay. And so here we go. From here on out, this movie is about one funny, exciting, entertaining set piece after another, and we're going to try to race through them. I'm going to try to do justice to them, but here we go. So there, it turns out, as luck would have it, there's another beryllium sphere on a planet nearby here that can save the ship. And so Jason's like, I know. How about we go get that? And so they're like, oh, yeah, he's a genius. Yeah, you're seeing with Tech Sergeant uh, just the uh, techno babble idea of just uh, how so many Star Trek solutions are. If we just change the polarity, it would induce the phase inducers and like, okay, make it so. 
yeah, let's do that. That sounds fun. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they have to go down to this planet to retrieve this beryllium sphere. And this is probably the most famous scene in this movie where all the crew of the protector beam or flies down to this planet. And they bring Guy with them because Guy wants to go. And as they're going down to the ship, this is where Guy starts having a conniption fit because he's like, wait a minute. I'm the red shirt here. Like, I don't even have a name. I don't have a last name. I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you'll be fine. He's like, I don't have a last name. Yeah, the guy's, he's taken this, this meta game really seriously to heart, right? Like, he, he's, he actually believes he's on the TV show. And he's also very clearly the only guy, other than maybe Tim Allen, sorry, Jason Nesbitt, he's the only guy who's watched the show regularly. And so he's the one calling out, do you guys even watch the show? Uh, like, these creatures are going to turn bad. Of course they will. They always do. And that's the thing, like, again, I don't I don't watch Star Trek. I don't know it all that well. But even I know that there's a crewman that always dies. Like, when, you know, <laughs> Nimoy and Shatner would go down to a planet, and all of a sudden there's extra one and extra two in a different colored shirt. Those guys are dead. Even I know that. So yeah. that's the trope here. This is very well known in Star Trek, that the extra person is going to die. But I think he's he's sort of uh, he's sort of helping his own case for living by saying so many lines. Because most red shirts don't say shit all. <laughs> yeah. So they go down to this planet, and again, most people, I'm sure, have seen the scene, but I'll just try to describe it. And they see it's like an abandoned mining site, and they see these beryllium spheres just sitting out in the open, as they do sometimes, apparently. And yep. they're like, oh, let's go over there and get those spheres. And Guy's like, no, there's, there's something bad's going to happen. I'm going to get killed. And it turns out there's these little creatures, or these little blue, they look like babies almost, walking around. And all the all the crew is like, oh, how cute! And and like you said, Mark, and guys like, no, haven't you guys watched the show? They're gonna turn mean. They have teeth. Watch out for them. And then of course they do show their evil teeth, and they start they start killing one of their own. And uh, uh, there's a little little line here my cousin loves. I gotta call it out where uh, where uh, Gwen Sigourney Weaver say, we gotta get away before one of those things kills Guy. <laughs> so like even Shade buying into this TV show. <laughs> nonsense yeah and that's the lie i circled that as well in my notes we have to get out before somebody kills guy <laughs> like exactly. they're just buying into it they, they, they don't know they know they all have body armor they just think guy is in danger <laughs> and then as they're going over to get the beryllium sphere you got tim allen rolling doing these little tuck rolls just for no reason <laughs> is that something that william shatner would do Yes, he do the he do the punch where he puts both fists together and knock them in the back there. Um, he'd always have much opportunity to, to rip a shirt. That also that would always happen as well. Usually in the desert planet, uh, there's always a desert planet because they're always shooting near Vasquez Falls. Until now, where they're now shooting in the Toronto area forest, which is very jarring. <laughs> yeah, Tim Allen's again rolling, and and the other people are like, does that help? Does rolling actually make a difference? And Jason, yes, it helps. He's like, yeah, it helps. <laughs> I just love how he deadpans that line. Because Jason Nesbitt, he is so into this character now, right? More so than anyone else here, other than Guy, maybe. So again, the little babies, they sprout teeth and they come after them. And everybody runs and escapes except Jason, who uh, he has to like sacrifice himself because he's the hero. And so the little babies end up kidnapping him and he gets stuck down to the planet. And meanwhile, Rickman's like screaming at him like, it's always about you. You have to be the hero. Yeah, it's like in Star Trek mythology, Captain Kirk's kind of an outlier in that he always has to do everything himself, right? And he always leads every away mission. He's always at the in the most danger out of everyone in the crew. And later captains will sort of point out, no, you're not supposed to be doing that at all. <laughs> yeah, so again, all this is based on actual Star Trek, you know, tropes and stuff. And so poor Jason, the commander, wakes up on the planet and he's like... He's like in some arena, and he's in a fight with like this little pig monster. 
Oh, I'm curious, actually. I want to go a little bit further ahead here. I want to ask you a question. Do you know where in Star Trek the rock monster comes from? I just know the, there's that famous rock. I don't know about the rock monster. I know there's that big uh, place where they film stuff. Yeah, it is not Vasquez Rocks, which uh, you see now in all fiction shot in L.A. a lot of the times. But uh, the rock was a, uh idea in the William Shatner-directed Star Trek V, where uh, Kirk would be running from that god that isn't god, and then he'd be being chased down by this multiple rock monsters. Then they later decided to make it one rock monster, and then there are things that are rather obvious – of it being a 1989 movie with no budget, they had to cut the whole rock monster fight entirely because it just became unfeasible. Oh. Right? So this movie is them finally getting to do the rock monster bit. Okay, I did not know that, but that's good trivia there. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, so Jason's fighting this pig monster, and the crew is up on the ship. They're like, well, we'll try to rescue you. We have this uh, digital conveyor, which is like we can digitize you and bring you up to the ship. Kind of like, I guess, Mike TV and Willy Wonka, where you break him into a million pieces and bring him up. And he's like, no, you know, I don't want to do that. I can fight this thing. This is, It's like a dumb pig monster. And so they're like, no, we'll try it. We'll test it out. And this is one of the great lines in the movie where they do this digital thing where, again, they, they take the, the pig monster and they suck it up to the ship just to test it out to see if it'll work on Jason. And it shows up on the ship and it's like inside out and its ribs are all exposed. <laughs> it's like, ew. I'll, I'll quote the character, um, uh, but the, the, the monster is inside out. And it exploded. <laughs> yeah, the, the timing on that joke, because this monster impl- or explodes, and it, all of a sudden there's meat and gore all over the room, and the one guy's like, and it exploded. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, he doesn't understand deception still. He doesn't understand that you want to sort of, uh, you want to parse out the information delicately, right? <laughs> yes. So Jason hears this. He's like, what? It exploded? And they're like, hold, please. But she doesn't hit hold, because she still doesn't know where the hold button is. <laughs> Yeah, so Jason's trapped down there, and he's fighting this in this arena, and all of a sudden, all the little monsters start chanting this, uh, what is the word, Gorignac or something like that? Yes, which is a translation for rock. Yeah, they're chanting rock, rock. And Jason's like, why are they chanting rock? And then all of a sudden, like Mark said, this rock creature comes to life and starts attacking him. It's like 50 feet tall, made out of rocks. Which is also where, which is also where, that, where that brilliant traitor quote comes, oh darn. <laughs> oh darn! See, see, see all the worst jokes are in the trailer. Yeah, exactly. So, so Jason's being chased by this rock monster, and all of a sudden they're trying to beam him up to the ship and and save him. And Jason's like, "Digitize me, digitize me!" And just again, so many little quotes in this section of the movie where Guy, he's like, "I have an idea. Why don't you construct a weapon? Can you find a rudimentary lathe?" And Jason's like, "No, there's no lathe." <laughs> and again, just as a comedy writer. The word lathe used in a comedy movie, I have to give credit to. That's a great word. Yeah, an improv are always taught about uh, the idea of using specifics. Uh, you know, not just, uh, can you find a thing? It's always a lathe, and those little words always stick out if you can land them properly. <laughs> yeah. So again, they, they digitize Jason. He somehow just barely uh, escapes the rock monster. He comes up, and everything's saved, and they, they have the beryllium sphere. So they're all ready to go home, and you think the uh, movie's going to be over. But no, here we go to Act 3, where it turns out that Ceres, the evil villain, is on the ship, and he's kidnapped them all. And he's basically torturing poor Mathazar, and he's sucking all the air out of the, uh, the, the, the ship so all the Thermians will die. And he's like, look, look what you fools have done. You've come up here and you've meddled and you've ended up killing all the Thermians. Nice job. And this is where uh, we get actually a really sad scene. There's actually, I would say, two sad scenes in this movie that kind of come out of mm-hmm. nowhere and kind of hit you emotionally. 
And one of them's right here where Ceres tells uh, Jason Nesbitt, why don't you explain to Mathazar what an actor is and what kind of damage you've done? Why don't you explain to him that you're a liar just like I am? And it's this is kind of a heartfelt scene. Yeah, I'm, I'm, as part of my other podcast, we do the Marvel movies act by act. And uh, so you kind of have, not, so, not always in the Marvel movies, but you have a point in a lot of screenplays that's the all hope is lost moment. And that's kind of what this is. We're all going to die. And, and, and usually also if, if it's a screwball comedy, right? Uh, like maybe a romantic comedy where there's deception. This is that point where the deception has to uh, eventually come to blows, right? Or be revealed for what it is uh, before then in, in this romantic comedy before they come back together again anyways. But uh, here it's, it's just that trope of the truth must come out. I'll save this question for later then. I'll, there's a question about this I'll ask you later. Yeah, let's race through this so we can get to the end here and get to the, the, the discussion. Yes, but they so they explained to Sassasar that the, and it's a TV show, right? that it's all fake. And, and Nesbitt has a little sort of moment of self-reflection, right, where he's, uh, it's all fake, just like me. And you sort of see him reflect on the emptiness of his life. Yeah, and you just see it in Mathazar's eyes as well, that his entire worldview has been destroyed, that this person, basically his Superman, his idol, the god they have revered for years, is a fraud and has been lying and is exactly like Ceres. So it's just a very sad scene. And like you said, all hope is lost, and, and Ceres just laughs. Ho, 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 like, I'm going to kill all the Thermians. They'll all be dead. I'm blowing up the ship. And they set a timer that in eight minutes the ship is going to explode. And just and just the meanness of uh, you know I'm gonna kill you anyways, but before you do, I'm gonna ruin your entire worldview. Yeah, that's just a dick move. <laughs> yeah. I do not care for this Ceres character. He gets what he deserves, <laughs> yeah. which is death, I guess. Okay, so so anyway, the the it looks like all hope is lost, and the crew is now screwed. The ship's gonna blow up in eight minutes, and it turns out the only way to stop the ship from blowing up, they have to run down into the like the thermal detonator, the reactor core inside their ship, and they have to stop it. And they're like, we don't know how where this is. We have no idea how this ship works. And as luck would have it, they happen to have a way to communicate with these nerdy kids back home we saw at the start of the movie, the ones that have like a 3D model of the entire ship and know everything yeah. that's ever happened. So they call this... Justin Long's crew, you could say. Yeah, Justin Long's crew. And they call him up, and this is just a fantastic scene. And this is the kind of stuff they didn't show in the trailer where where uh, Jason calls down to this, this little Galaxy Quest nerd back on Earth, and he's like... Uh, you know how uh, you know we we saw you at the convention, and I told you that nothing on Galaxy Quest is real. And I kind of was I was cross with you. And the kid's like, Yeah, I, I know. I, I I have to admit it. I I took it a little too far. I know it's not real. It's just a hobby. And Jason's like, No, I was wrong. It's real. It's all real. And the kid's like, I knew it. I, I knew, knew it. it. I knew it was real. <laughs> Man, I wish you could point to like Star Trek fans who thought. It was real. I can't say that I myself ever did, but uh, I wanted it to be real. I have for Stargate SG-1's fans who uh, believed it was real and that the show was just, uh, you know, somebody living through this real life, sort of stoling it out into the TV writers. And to the point where the show actually did a parody of this very premise, but uh, I wish I had more to say about that. I really don't. <laughs> I just know that I just say like the, like the amount of comprehensive data there is about the Enterprise is unbelievable, man. All right, so let's say Patrick Stewart called you on the phone right now and said he was trapped up on, on the Enterprise somewhere and he needs some, uh, you know, schematics on how to get through the ship. Would you be able to help him? 
Um, I don't know where my blueprints are. I think they're in storage, but I'm sure with some Google searches, I could find those schematics and be able to relay him through it. Uh, you know, it, it kind of depends if the Thermians had access to those blueprints. I'd have to imagine that they did. Uh, we see these Thermians have come to Earth several times, so even if they don't get it, it's fiction. They've clearly bought the technical manuals. They've bought the blueprints. They've they've bought uh, Galaxy Quest and Science, the the guidebook, and based their tech based on that. So. Uh, <laughs> They've done their thorough research, and there's a lot of stuff out there on the Enterprise if you needed it. Okay, let's so let's go through the scene, which I love, where Justin Long and his little teenage crew, including some one kid who looks like he's about nine, like they hook up all their combined knowledge about the ship, and they start communicating with Jason Nesbitt, explaining how he and Gwen can go down to the reactor, and this is the vent you have to take. And again, just yep. the stuff that only the nerds would know. And this is the, the thing that I really love. They get to a scene with the chompers. This is classic, yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a room in the ship that just has big metal things that pound against one another randomly and just crush everything in between them. And Gwen's like, why the hell is this in the middle of the ship? And Jason's like, well, because it was on the TV show, so they just built it. And she's like, well, whoever wrote this episode should die. This episode was badly written. Have you noticed the moment where she says, well, screw that? When she's saying it, she's actually mouthing something very different. Yeah, I was going to mention that. There's a, It's a very, very, very obvious overdub. One of the yeah. m- most obvious ones I've ever seen in a movie where she sees the chompers, Sigourney, and she says basically, F that, but they didn't want an F word in this movie, so they drew, they dubbed it to screw that. Not even their one obligatory F word? <laughs> yeah, well, again, it, it, it breaks my heart because an F word right there would have really sold that joke. Just mm-hmm. from a comedy writing perspective, I know the F word's always funny if you use it right. And you know it's out there somewhere on some archive somewhere. But she just sees the chomper. She's like, F that. <laughs> so, and, man, I watched all the original series after Next Generation. After seeing this movie, just looking for some kind of chomper scene, I never quite saw it. The only equivalent I can think of is Star Wars The Phantom, Phantom Menace, which came out this the year this movie came out. So it doesn't really work. Yeah, I, I, again, this isn't specifically based on Star Trek, I'm sure, just yeah. science fiction stuff in general. But yeah, it's a wonderful scene where, for some reason, the kids back on Earth know the pattern to get through the chompers. Like, you go up two, and then wait four, and then go up two, and wait four. Yeah, well, you, all the kids just watching this DVD, well, maybe VHS, yeah, maybe the DVD would exist then, his DVD copy of the episode, and he's just writing down the timing of it. <laughs> That's great. And of course, and like, the Thermians, they duplicated the actual timing of the chompers. Yes, the, the Thermians, they spared no expense, just like on Jurassic Park here. Exactly. I mean, this, I mean we haven't mentioned the Omega-13 device. I do. This is the one thing that stretches credibility a little bit, is that, you know, they base this space on the TV show and the historical documents, all that stuff. They build a working ship. They even build a working Omega-13 device, despite the fact that nobody, fan or writers, can really come to agreement as to what the Omega-13 actually does. But apparently the Omega-13 does what it's meant to do on the show. You know, if only the Thermians had harnessed all that intellect for good as opposed to this. <laughs> like, they're building beryllium spheres and the Omega-13 and chompers. Man, if they just uh, maybe built a Death Star, they could they could destroy the, uh... They could destroy Ceres easily if they just watched Star Wars and figured out, we could just duplicate that tech. Well, we need some kyber crystals and we're, we got this. <laughs> they just watched the wrong historical documents. Yeah, so, well, then, of course, the Force isn't hard science fiction, then, so maybe that's why, right? They tried to use them the Force, and it was a disaster, right? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Mathazar looked right at a lightsaber and pointed at his face like Luke did and turns <laughs> it on. I'm sure that he did that at some point. Yeah, he tried pulling it to himself and immediately hit of a battle and got sliced to death before it got to him. 
<laughs> Lots of cutscenes of Mathazar accidentally killing himself with force powers. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so so Gwen and uh, Jason get down into the bowels of the ship, and there's a blue button. Again, as this, this absolute genius comedy writing in this scene. This is one of the best things I've ever seen in a script, where they get to the center of the ship, and there's like a, a blue button that stops the ship from self-destructing. And they press it, and nothing happens. And like, oh, crap. Like, this is the stop. This is the terminate button. Why isn't it working? And they're calling Justin Long back at home. And, of course, Justin Long has been tasked for taking out the garbage at that moment. <laughs> Just, yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh, every Star Trek fan dilemma. We want to be inside playing Overwatch or playing games, and you know, the trash has to go out. This is why it's better to be an adult than a kid, i got to say. All right, speaking of which, did you catch who the adult is, who Justin Long's mom is in that scene? Uh, she's familiar. I can't place her. That's George Costanza's fiance Susan from Seinfeld. Oh, right. The one that got written off the show because she had no chemistry with the cast? Yeah, she licked the envelopes and died. So here she is with <laughs> yes. uh, Justin Long's mom. So anyway, they get the blue button and they're trying to stop the ship from self-destructing and nothing happens. And Justin Long is like, I don't know how to help you. Nobody knows how to stop this ship. And so... Well, he's, he's, not, even, he's not even on the intercom anymore. He's gone outside yeah so they they just wait for the countdown to go down to, to zero and the ship's gonna blow up and gwen and jason hug and really think this is the end of the movie and then the countdown gets down to one and stops and nothing happens and they're like what happened and gwen is the first one to figure it out she's like well on the tv show it always gets to one and then stops so the thermians just built the same technology <laughs> here Man, just imagine Thermian's playing Survivor. It's always going to be a blind sight. It's always going to be a surprise vote. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So, it's that slav slav slavish attention to detail. It's And if this was James Bond, it would always end on 007. Yeah, it's just, again, from a comedy writing perspective, the levels of meta-ness in that joke where <laughs> the Thermians saw that it always stops on one on the TV show. So they literally designed the functionality that it will only go down to one, and it just warns <laughs> you that it's going to blow up, but it never does. <laughs> Yeah, like even Gwen knows that. Gwen doesn't watch Galaxy Quest, obviously, but she's seen enough other TV and movies to know that they always stop at one. They Even even if the countdown doesn't mathematically make sense, like Independence Day has like a 30-second countdown that takes two minutes. But, it, but it, uh, oh, it doesn't stop at one that time. But It's just, again, that, that is the scene right there that won me over for this movie. When I was watching it, I'm like, this is a genius movie. Like, I, I can never say anything bad about this movie because it has that joke in it right there, the countdown stopping at one. So the ship doesn't blow up, and uh, although we do have a sad scene here, and again, like I said, there's two especially sad scenes that sneak up on you. Oh, we got to do the second scene. I know we're out of time, but we got to do the second scene. Now, don't worry. We can. We got ten minutes. We'll finish strong. Okay. We always stop at one. We'll stop at one. Yeah, we'll set the phasers to fun, and we'll stop at one. Now it's a rhyme. Oh no. So, uh, Quillick, the guy, the Thermian who has been with Doctor Lazarus this whole time, he like thinks of him, thinks of himself as Doctor Lazarus's son. He's uh, he's shot as Doctor Lazarus and him are going to free all the Thermians from being the, having their air removed. Uh, Quillick is shot and he collapses and he's wounded, and uh, Doctor Lazarus leans over him, and he's like uh. We'll take you to a. Uh, we'll take you to the, the the medical ward. You'll be fine. And Quillick's like, no, I'm gonna die. But I just wanted to let you know, it's been my honor that you know I was able to serve with you. And you like, I always thought of you as my father. And that this is like the greatest moment of my life. And like, it's a legitimately sad scene. And then we have a, an excuse for Doctor Lazarus to literally say his line and make make it make sense in context. More than that, he means it, right? He hates the line, but this is like him. This is a former Shakespeare actor who lost his faith in his craft, 
and now he's kind of rediscovers why he does this, right? Like it means something to have a fan care that much, and it just I just love this delivery of just he lo- he likes the line finally, or he it, it means something because he's saying it to somebody he cares about. Oh, yeah. And I just love, I love both the delivery and just what he does afterwards. And you just see from this point on, uh, Alan, Rick- Alan Rickman, the actor he's playing, Alexander Dane, you know, he's he's now just like Jason Nesbitt from this point on. He's buying into the character. He's playing the part of Dr. Lazarus. He's even giving sense of reports about Xerus' ship later on because, uh, you know, just this one fan, you know, he's met a lot of fans that he never really connected with, but this one fan, him dying for him, just reminding him why he does this yeah and and again he knows saying this line to this kid will give him peace in his moment of death so he actually says it he says you know by grabthar's hammer by the sons of warvan you shall be avenged and the guy dies quillick dies with like this perfect look of peace and tranquility on his face and like i defy anyone's eyes not to start watering at that scene that's a touching moment oh yeah it's a brilliant scene i just It's it's foreshadowed for sure, but uh, you know maybe it's the more obvious thing when he says like, I won't say that stupid line, and then you know he's gonna say the stupid line yeah. and mean it too. That like you said and mean it, yeah. Although it's followed by a great one of my favorite little uh, un- unheralded jokes in the movie where where uh, Doctor Lazarus frees all the Thermians. You know he kills the guy that that shot Quillick, and then he frees all the Thermians, and he's the hero, and he opens the door, and they have air again, and all the Thermians are like. Yay, Commander Taggart saved us! <laughs> He's like, God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> well, a little secret of the original series cast is that uh, fans actually liked Spock more than Kirk, and this bothered William Shatner to no end for a long time. <laughs> But again, that's that's one of those jokes I always forget when I watch this movie. And I've seen this movie many times. I forgot about that. Commander mm-hmm. Taggart saved us. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the crew saves the day and they somehow defeat Ceres. I'm just going to skim through that so we can get to the ending here. And they, their ship is going out of control. All of a sudden, they, they have to get back to Earth and they have to crash land. And, and this is where Justin Long and his nerdy buddies are like, well, we'll help you. We'll go outside. And I got, I got Roman candles and we'll go outside and we'll, we'll show you a path, like a path of where to fly for. Aim for us and we'll draw you in. And so a great scene here where Justin Long is, is running outside with his box of fireworks and his mom's like, where are you going? He's like, well, I got to do this, and the, the protector is flying in, and we got to do this, and we're going to lead them into the path, and it's, uh, we'll, we'll give them the vector, and he, he, she has no idea what the hell he's saying, and he just runs outside, and she kind of looks at her husband, and she's like, well, at least he's outside. Well, Mario, you're a father. Have you ever had a moment like this in where your child's going off to do something you don't even understand, and you're just like, well, at least she's, he or she's doing something? Oh, yeah. My son plays Minecraft. I have no idea how Minecraft works, but, you know, he's learning, he's building stuff, so more power to him. Yeah, it's an exploratory game. It's uh, it's testing his brain muscles. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's it's not for me to understand, but it makes him happy, so go for it. That's how I look at it. Nice. So the the crew is led in by Justin Long and his little nerds, and they end up crashing back on Earth, and and somehow they uh they as fate would have it, they land at a Galaxy Quest convention, and they like crash through with the stage and land in front of uh, the audience. Yeah, it's the same convention that was going on before. It just clearly goes across like four days, I guess. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay, it's the same one. Yeah, that's why they're using the parking lot, I guess, because that's the they just know that's I guess the easiest can reach uh, a meeting point for all of us, I guess. And again, this is a great ending. That's one of the reasons why I think this movie is so strong, because it ends so strong the last 20 minutes. Oh, and 
I almost forgot my question I had for you. There's a bit at the end, right, where uh, um, uh, Mathisar comes back and he's uh, he's sort of saying, uh, it was all just a TV show. It was all just uh, foam and wire. What an incredible deception. Until today, I always read that moment as him, Mathisar, making fun of it being a TV show, mm-hmm. right? Well, I'm now reading today that people interpret that as Mathisar kind of going back on it, saying, oh, we were joking. You told him it was a TV show. What a great joke. It was all still real in the end, right? And I, I never got that reading until reading about it today on TV Tropes. Like, uh, what did you see that as? Does Mathisar still believe this is real, or is he now aware of it being a TV show? Oh, I've never... I, I think Mathisar has no growth arc in this movie whatsoever. I think... Really? Yeah, he thinks, what a great trick you pulled on Sarah's, ha, ha, ha. Like, he thought you were just a TV. So, yeah, I don't think he learned at all. I, I've always thought that. Because I, I thought that was, maybe, I've always read it as him accepting that it was fake, but still, like, you know, we're still better off because of it, right? Because he got, and then I feel like that the arc kind of has those stepping stones of the moment in the middle where he's like, well, we're being introduced to deception. You know, the people have lied to us, and we've discovered it through there. And I sort of saw that as a bit of a learning arc for Mathisar. And, you know, here he's learned to accept the fiction for what it is. And Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I, I apparently am the only one in the universe who believes this, so. Yeah, go back to Ceres' line here. Explain to him as you would a child. Like, Mathazar does not have that, that mental ability to grasp this this level of uh, complexity. Well, children have to grow up eventually, right? They have to develop their faculties. Eventually, but Mathazar may take 50 to 60 years to get there. Well, I'll have to live my own little world where I see this my way then. <laughs> okay. It's real. It's real, Mark. I'm letting you know it's real. It's all real. The Galaxy Quest is real? Yes, you knew it. How can Galaxy Quest be real? The Star Trek's not even referenced in this movie, and so many layers to this, I'm now totally breaking my brain around. Okay, so the end of the movie is the, the protector lands back at, this, at the convention, and this great scene where all the, all the audience is sitting there just watching, and the crew members one by one straggle out onto stage as if it was all planned. And like, hey, here comes Laredo. Here comes Tech Sergeant Chen. I'm, I'm sorry, was crashing a spaceship through the convention ceiling part of the plan? I believe the conventioneers probably think it was. What about the guys that run the convention hall? They're, they clearly didn't. I Look, I, I don't want to get into this level of... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't write the movie, Mark. Okay, somebody's paying for this, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so they all one by one come out, and then Guy comes out, and I love the announcer. <laughs> Another shipmate! Like, <laughs> they have no clue who Guy is. And then Alexander Dane comes out, and they're like, He's British! <laughs> And then, and then, uh, Sarah shows up for some reason. Sarah has one last hurrah, and he shows up on stage. And Jason, of course, in front of the whole crowd, does his little tuck roll and takes out a gun and then shoots him. And Sarah explodes, and the audience goes crazy, like yeah, and like <laughs> big crowd pleasing moment. That would have been a fun one to see in the theater. Yeah, nice cheap special effects of him like popping in the in the thin air. Yeah, <laughs> again, it's a, it's a, it's a fun movie. It's a Thermian slavishly uh, adhering to 80s science uh, special effects technology. Well, I think the Thermians had designed Ceres to explode because he explodes on the TV show. So maybe they designed him. Oh, they designed the weapon, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's the end of the movie and everyone's happy. And uh, and, uh, and, the sh- and the show gets relaunched thanks to Netflix. It does. It gets relaunched. The Netflix, the season four, like Arrested Development, where 
Gaia's in the show now. So it's like they're all the same age and they're rebooting the show. And now Guy shows up as, and I wrote this down. He now is, we see Guy Fliegman as security chief Rock Ingersoll. Yep. Uh, he's got a last name that's very important. And uh, it just it's just touching to see like the actors, you know, rediscover the reason they do this for the fans, for people to be inspired, you know, like the Thermians, I think, touched them in a way, you know, they, the Thermians uh, made this all work and that gave them the drive to go back to this. Right. And it's just it just it's, it's a little thing, but it's just really important to me to see Alan Rickman's character back in that makeup. You know, you notice he never take the makeup, the prosthetic off throughout the entire movie and there's certain moments where he's sliding it down because he doesn't want the Thermian to see his real hair um you know he's finally but finally at the end he's wearing it lovingly right not only is he lovingly embracing his costume i don't know if you noticed that the whole movie gwen demarco is upset that all people do is focus on her boobs but by the end of the movie her boobs are literally hanging out of her costume and that's all you can focus on so that's a little joke that i noticed as well And so there you have Galaxy Quest, one of these great fish-out-of-water stories. And again, like I said at the start, I would absolutely rank this in my movies of it's impossible to dislike. I would, If there's a person out there who hates this movie, I would love to hear about it because I, I don't think it's personally possible. And again, this is coming from a non-Star Trek guy. They probably hate it because they've never seen it. They've seen the marketing for it, and they're like, Star Trek, I'm too good for spaceships, you know? Like, I've, I've actually met friends, right, uh, you know, in university who would just say to me, like, uh, oh, I've never watched Star Wars, I've never watched Star Trek, never watched Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, why, why are you proud of this? Like, not to say that you should be ashamed of not watching it either, but why is this a badge of honor? Why is this something you brag about, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Although, by that rationale, I really hope you rush out and watch Three Amigos, which is literally this exact same movie. I have so many movies to watch. No! (laughs) Okay, well, speaking of movies to watch, I know I'm going to sign off here, but why don't you tell us about this podcast? You're doing a uh, podcast with your cousin on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do people find that? So uh, it's supposed to be at iTunes soon, uh, maybe as of the time this gets put out. The iTunes feed will be live. I have submitted it. Uh, this is Heroic Acts. It is me and my cousin Drew Strickler, also Canadian, but currently living in Hong Kong. Uh, we are going through the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starting with Iron Man, going act by act. So each episode covers a single act. Uh, you know, a lot of other podcasts do movies by minute, and uh, there's far too much Marvel movies to ever be able to do that. So this is going one act at a time where we discuss uh, the story, we discuss lore, we discuss story structure, and uh, in general just uh, try to have a good time with this. All right. And again, Mark, I just want to uh, thank you for stopping by. That was a fun episode to do. I learned a lot about Star Trek. and. All right. Glad to be of help. Yeah, we, we both had so much more to say, but again, I have a hard time limit on these podcasts. So I just uh, appreciate you stopping by and uh, – helping me with staff picks and uh, doing Galaxy uh, Quest the justice it deserved. All right. Can I finally turn my air conditioner back on? God damn, it's hot in here in Canada. (laughs) Okay. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. You can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, concerns, or if you just want to say you hate me or you hate Galaxy Quest. Also, you can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll be looking for somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Until next time, by Grabthar's Hammer, by the Sons of Warvan, bye.
What was that? Uh, I heard some squealing or something. Oh, no, everything's fine. But the animal is inside out. I heard that. It turned inside out? And it exploded.